This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Thursday, August 11th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Merrick Garland gave a press conference, the cumulative effect of which was that I and everyone else who speaks into a microphone can say Merrick Garland gave a press conference. Garland explained what didn't need a lot of explanation, that former President Trump was not in compliance, so the DOJ sought his compliance under the law. They didn't say which law, but they can't really do so unless President Trump, former President Trump, okays releasing the warrant. He could have turned over the documents in question. He had many opportunities to do so. The DOJ worked with his lawyers, even at the time the warrant was served. His lawyers were there in Mar-a-Lago. But the government needed the documents, so the government got the documents. We, by the way, we, all of us, are the government. He is a guy who has to follow the rules, just like the rest of us do. I can't believe I'm talking about this after three days. I can't believe some guy took a shot at FBI headquarters in Cincinnati. Hard to figure that you might run into trouble with that move, buddy. The FBI is a nefarious, tentacled institution that threatens to choke off the bloodstream. Do you choke off bloodstream? That threatens to choke off the oxygen supply of a free people. So I know if I, one guy, puts on some camo... I can neutralize them. But you know what I like? I don't like that. You know what I like? I like being consistent. Yes, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Emerson said that. But to quote Lake and Palmer, an easy consistency assuages the unsettled mind, meaning I don't have to think too deeply through various stances and how do I square different things that I said and believed depending on whose ox was getting gored. I just say, follow the law and laws shouldn't be ignored. I've consistently said we should all follow the law and we shouldn't ignore the law. Well, I've also believed that there should be and is a mechanism to change the law, and that's for societies themselves to go through the process of changing the laws, not individuals doing it ad hoc. So when Donald Trump doesn't comply, I say he should comply. But when someone tries to flee the Chicago police, I don't think they should be shot, but they should be punished. And I wonder, huh? Those fleeing suspects, I mean, cops have abused them, especially in Chicago, but the fleeing suspects, if you don't chase them, aren't they just going to flee more? Shouldn't they not flee? Shouldn't you do something to compel them not to flee? The alternative, just let them go. Aren't we going to get a lot more of letting more of them go? I know, I could play this out like 3D chess or 1.5D shoots and ladders. If you don't chase, more are going to run. Yes, 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 but if we know their addresses, we could just visit them at home. Okay, but they know this don't chase policy, right? Might they attempt to run away from their homes? What about when some laws are unjust? Then you could disobey, right? Well, you can, but you shouldn't escape punishment. Don't burn down a Minneapolis police station. And also, hand over your documents when the FBI tells you to, as mandated by law. Edward Snowden should have complied with the law. Reality winner should have complied with the law. Donald Trump should have complied with the law. Or they need to accept the consequences. 
Didn't Hillary Clinton violate classification laws? Yes. And didn't she escape punishment? Yes. But you know what she did beforehand? She turned over all her documents when asked. And it was explained, we don't usually prosecute. That probably, well, I don't know, we're pretty far down, but I could see something like that applying to this situation where no search warrant was necessary. It's outrageous that the documents were seized. Well, Trump could have stopped that. By doing what? He could have complied. It's pretty reasonable. Of course, pretty reasonable is not in Donald Trump's interest. Martyrdom is. St. Donald of the packing crate. Oh, they light you on the pyre of mementos you wanted to keep. Kevin Williamson in National Review writes, Donald Trump is a former president, not a mystical, sacrosanct being. If we really believe, as we say we believe, that this is a republic, that nobody is above the law, that the presidency is just a temporary executive branch office rather than a quasi-royal entitlement, then there is nothing all that remarkable about the FBI serving a warrant on a house in Florida. I agree. Well, here's another one. Oh, yeah? Well, do we want to become a country where we investigate former presidents? We do not. And you know who could have stopped that? Donald Trump by just giving over the documents he had to give over. If Donald Trump didn't want that eventuality, he could have complied instead of invoking a three-day national cardboard box crisis. But it didn't comply, and here we are. No one is above the law. That's a thing that we assert only because there are so many cases where someone's acting like it's not true. Lawbreaking has a romance to it. I will concede that. Compliance seems really boring. There is no amour foo in acquiescence, but celebrating non-compliance weakens the system and the crazy passions of amour foo just become crazy. On the show today are Chinese adversaries playing the long game, but jumping on short-term opportunities. Squirrely monkey, patient dragon. But first, Jason Kander, on yesterday's show, joins us once more. Yesterday, we talked about how his PTSD drove him off the campaign trail and away from politics. Today, I pressed the former Secretary of State of Missouri on if he's going to stay out of the field forever or if this is something of a positioning effort. Don't worry, he has good answers. It doesn't get tense. Jason Kander, author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, up next. Jason Kander is the former Secretary of State of Missouri, was a rising star in Democratic politics, a moderate and excellent speaker, a veteran. But while veteran, combat veteran, looks great on a resume, the reality of that can play havoc with your mind. So Kander dropped out and addressed his habit of self-medicating with success and the highs of achievement. My first question to him in this round of interviews was, as a person who was a state legislator and then a statewide elected official, then a national political figure and someone who met with presidents and the top players in democratic politics, the higher up you rose, did you see more or less functionality among the political actors around you? Oh, that's a great question. I think it stayed about the same because I can think of, there's plenty of, because the thing is, is, you know, when you, a lot of the people you meet at the lower echelons, they aspire to be at the higher echelons. And sometimes they're not at the higher echelons because they're not there yet because they're beginning of their career. Sometimes they're not there because they're just not as good at this. Sometimes it's just serendipity, whether the opportunities were there, but they're all kind of the same people. Um, you know, like 
For example, when, you know, when we are introduced to people when they show up on MSNBC or CNN or Fox, we're like, oh, they're a national anchor, a national reporter. Well, I mean, like, they all started at, you know, Tampa and then went to, you know, whatever. And in the same way, everybody you see who uh, is a U.S. senator or is a member of Congress, there are people who serve with them on the city council or in the state house who are shocked that they are in those jobs, right? And it, it, across the board, there's always, that's always going to be the case. I mean, there, I guess, are exceptions to that. But like, so that's the, that's part of it, but also because like there's lots of examples I have of uh, politicians at the national level who are quite well adjusted. I can remember going to keynote the Colorado Democratic Party's annual, you know, big fundraising dinner, and I was kind of friends already a little bit with Michael Bennett, the senator from, senator from Colorado, and he and I were hanging out in like the green room beforehand. And I remember he had just read um, *Sapiens*, you know that that book, Yuval Harari, yeah, yeah. And he and I hadn't read it yet. And he comes in, he sits with me, and he and we have this very philosophical conversation where he's talking about how, like, how ridiculous is this? Like, you and I are sitting in this room because we're quote unquote like special or something. He's like, we're all just like people walking around. He's like, what is a senator anyway? And I remember thinking, God, this dude <laughs> was it is... like past the bong time. <laughs> no, it was, well, I mean, I could hear, I could see how it comes out that way. But like, I remember just thinking like, cause you know, this is before I ever got help. And I remember thinking this dude is so grounded. Like he's, and I remember being like, wow, I would aspire to be able to stop and think about those kind of things while in this business, but I never would because I don't slow down and think about things because it's not good for me. But uh, so there are people who I think are, you know, and that's a guy who ran for president. So there are people who are extremely well adjusted out there. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned him. He's always the guy I say when people say, what politicians do you like? I'm like, I'll tell you, you probably don't think about Michael Bennett a lot, but that guy's great. We talked about Catherine Boo novels when he was on the show. And yeah, it's funny that you mentioned him. He's just him. like, you know, he, you can extend to him the highest compliment available to a politician, which is he is a normal person. Yeah, and and th- th- that is that's the that's the medal of honor for political compliments. Like, which is funny because nobody's ever like, you know what I like about my accountant? Like, you know, just really got both feet on the ground. Exactly. It's one of the, it's one of those things where just just saying normal human being. Wow, I can't believe <laughs> he's a normal human. Wait, he's a carbon-based life form? You're blowing <laughs> right, exactly. me away. Exactly. The idea of and you mentioned this when you were in politics and people always impute motives to everything you're doing and i have to admit i read this book as i said to myself this is one of the best political memoirs i've ever read and then i said well it's not a political memoir and then i always had to have that meta voice saying but you know it is a political memoir maybe he's repositioning himself for at least the possibility of political office I think you'll be honest with me. Is some of that going on? Might it be going on? It's a really fair question. And it was really interesting to, once I had written the book, to realize that that no matter what I did, there a lot of people were going to process it through that lens. And, and I'll just say my thought process about it. Um, first, no, uh, it's the book is not about repositioning uh, myself. Um, to the extent that it is even anything close to that, it is it's two things. It's one... When you tell the whole world, like, hey, I'm going to vanish for a while because I'm suicidal and, and, you know, and then you come back as I did like eight months later and started doing some things in in public life, there's a sense that for me, I, I felt this thing where sometimes I would meet people and instead of seeing me, they'd see PTSD and they had a lot of questions and it would sometimes make me feel, um, a little bit like they were worried I was about to like spontaneously combust. And so 
you know, this isn't related to running for office at some point, but there is, and this is not the reason I wrote it. I wrote it because I think the book can help people and all that. You know, that's the reasons I wrote it. But the side benefit to me personally is, in the first instance, it's that it's a little easier for me. Like, I like the fact that um, the other parents of the kids on the Little League team I coach, that most of them have read it. And I feel like they know me now. Like, I've answered those questions. And, I, and, and you know, in the future, whatever I choose to do in my career or in my life... I like that there's something out there that's like, okay, here's the rest of the story so that I don't have to answer those questions for people or make people feel uncomfortable whether they should ask them. I totally get how people see that as like, oh, he wants to get the whole thing out there so that he can run one day. And I guess maybe if I ever do that, this would fit into that, right? But it's not why I did it. The second thing that is about sort of repositioning, but it's just not about repositioning me. Again, my main motivation is I want people to understand PTSD and I want people who might need help to go get it. But this other aspect is a way in which I think it can reposition PTSD to benefit other people, which is when people ask me, and I talk about this in the end of the book, when they ask me if I'm going to run for president, despite the fact that I've put all this stuff out there that like a Trump-like candidate would 100% use against me, the stuff in this book, I mean, you know, absolutely they would. I recognize that. Even Maybe even slight, someone slightly less vicious than Trump would be. It would be tempting not to, yes. Right. I mean, it would be whispers in a primary even, right? Like this dude used to stalk his house at night with a gun and thought people were invading his house. Like I get that. So I get that that's part of it. That's a trade-off I made. I realized that I'm saying things that could preclude me in the future because people would use them against me, but I feel like it's a public service to do it. And the repositioning part is the reason I always, because I have no desire at this moment in my life to run for president, and I don't know that I'll ever develop it again. But the reason I never say no in addition to never say no to anything, is I don't want anybody to ever hear me give an interview or read this book and in any way walk away with the conclusion that if they are if they have a job to fill and they're interviewing somebody who has PTSD, that I don't want anybody to ever conclude that that person might be limited and not be able to do the job. So I always say, yeah, maybe I'll run for president one day. I think I could be president because my saying that makes it more likely that if the person interviewing them has read this book, they're less likely to think that it's, it's going to keep them from being able to do the job. I think that's a great point. I think in general, our society is pretty, has grown uh, during my lifetime, more knowledgeable and much more forgiving about mental health, PTSD. The stigma is still there, but really being stripped away. I think about Simone Biles withdrawing from the Olympics. And yeah, Twitter will highlight the four biggest troglodytes questioning her. But I just think that there was a massive show of support and understanding and shouldn't risk her life, uh, you know, losing her place in midair. I do, however, think that politics is brutal. And it's probably the area where you will get where you would face the most incoming and get the least sympathy and understanding. And uh, I worry about that for us and our country. And I worry about you when it comes to that. And I wonder if you agree with me. Yeah, look, it's where the stakes are the highest, right? So if you if you are if you genuinely believe that what you want to do for the country is good and what the other person wants to do for the country is bad, well, it's not hard to get to a place where you will grab at any piece of evidence, any piece of ammunition you can use against them. Even if sometimes if you personally are like, I don't know if this is fair, but hey, the you know, the ends justify the means. 
you're right. That's the motivation. But I even think of things like in nowhere in public life would someone's weight just be, you know, used as a cudgel against them. And then Chris Christie runs for president. You might not like any of his politics. But yeah, he is, and not even silently, he is mocked for his weight. It's just, we've, we go back uh, 80 years and, you know, decades of evolution when it comes to politics. That's right. And the sad thing is, I... I wouldn't give us quite so much credit for coming as coming quite so far generally uh, in the stigma. And the reason is because like the Simone Biles example is a good one. I remember when that news broke, I was, I go, I get my haircut at this barber, uh, like a men's barber shop, you know, about a mile from my house. And I really enjoy it because it's like a focus group. You know, I just sit there and I'm pretty quiet and I listen to the conversations around me. And man, that was up on the TV. And it, and the guy who cuts my hair there is a vet. And, and so, you know, we sit there and listen to the other guys. And, and I, I had no idea what his politics are. I still don't really know. But we're sitting there and the other guys are like, these athletes, like, come on, mental health. Like, she's had this and she's had to been able to do this. And and I just kind of whispered to him. I was like, uh, these guys don't really know, do they? And he's like, he's like, no, they don't know. And And it's like, we get it. You know, we get it. We're able to understand, like, yeah, it's not just the pressure, like, those gymnasts have been through something. Have you, have you read the news? You know, but, but what I think that comes from is it is not simply that mental health still has a stigma. It's that so few of us have dealt with our mental health that part of avoidance, and this is what's going on, I think, in a, in a lot of ways in our national politics, part of avoidance is when there are things that are upsetting to us, we will find ways not to deal with those upsetting things. If you look at things like the gun debate, why does it get so much resonance online? The, these like, oh, they were crisis actors and they were, why? People are susceptible to that because that is an opportunity to not feel the feelings associated with, with absorbing that news as real. And, and if we can distance ourselves from news that is horrible being real, then we don't have to feel it. So in that case, if we can discount and we can dismiss what a famous person is going through is and their mental health not counting it gives us a greater excuse not to deal with our own pain and our own trauma and i think that's what's going on a lot uh, in in the national debate if you do run again for office and i hope you do especially if you want to politicians have to have armor and your whole uh your whole raison d'etre now is vulnerability i mean you put you're putting it out there and it's good. It's a strength to be vulnerable. And yet there is still such a thing as armor. Have you figured out a way, either through your counseling or just figuring it out yourself or talking to others, what constitutes healthy armor? The thing is, it's not even a if I run again question. So I'm able to answer this in real time because I'm still very vocal uh, and I'm, I still consider myself active in politics. It's not what I do for a living anymore, but I'm, but I'm very active. And, and so, you know, I'll go on TV and, and I'll talk about stuff and I'll get the horrible comments back and, you know, I get all that. So, um, here's why I think I'm actually in a far better place because before I was trying to fill myself up when it didn't work, but I was trying to fill myself up with positive affirmation from the public about my political abilities in order to try and bandage over the huge wounds I felt about, you know, my image of myself as a human being. Now I, I like myself, uh, and I, I, uh, I take care of myself and, 
and I think I'm a pretty good dude. And I actually think that I've done a lot for my country and I think I've done enough for my country. And so the interesting thing about it is, is I actually have like a more effective armor now. Before I had this armor that was like, like a physical armor. Like I had to put it up and be maintaining it all the time. And now I have what feels like much more of a force field. Like it's like people can say stuff and I, and I am able to understand like, oh, that's probably about you. That's probably not about me. And, and it, it's much easier. I'm not saying it never bothers me, um, but it's much easier to move through that stuff now. AOC, who for me is more quote unquote progressive than I, I would I would like as a politician, and also I sometimes question her tactics, but I give her a lot of uh, credit for her strengths. She came in fighting. She wanted to primary a lot of uh, existing politicians. It caused a lot of blowback. She's in the middle of so many media storms, much to her benefit, certainly to her detriment. But then she talks about things like, you know, it weighed on her so much she thought about quitting. And it was it takes such a psychological toll. She wondered if, you know, she'll be in politics in a couple of years. And personally, and I'll just admit, I may be influenced by what my opinion of her politics is, which isn't scathingly uh, derogatory, but more or less, I, I like more Michael Bennett type politicians. I, I questioned and I found fault in the whole process. I thought that if you're going to go hard in this big way and you have these doubts, I understand human beings have doubts, to then put the doubts out there, I'm just thinking, you know what, you get what you deserve, and this is politics, and if you want to get these fights, you're going to get the blowback. Do you think I'm being too harsh in that assessment? I do. I see it through a couple of different ways. One, our politics have changed to a place where you no longer are going to be successful in, in politics at the highest level by packaging a persona and offering it like an infomercial style, right? Like I think that ended probably around the 2012 campaign or so, you know, as soon as it was like social media was there and anybody could catalog what you're doing at any time, you know, I just think that, so to some extent, I think that that is, it, it's also effective politically, like part of, part of building a movement, and I'm not saying this is why she's doing it, but, but, but part of building a movement is, People need to feel like they know you. Like, like you're a podcast host. You know that when when people recognize you, they have a different they they treat it differently than when they recognize the anchor on the local news. They don't say, "Oh, hey, it's it's Mike Pesca." They say, "Oh, hey, Mike." And and a lot of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, your instinct because they're so familiar with you because you've been in their AirPods is you're like, oh, do, do I, know I know this, this person? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, it happens to me too. And but what that what that creates is a real closeness with you to where if you if you came on here and you asked people, I want you to donate to whatever it is, which probably you do at times, um, they're way more likely to do it because they you're their friend is how they feel. So I'm not saying she's doing it for this reason, but if what you want to do politically is that, like the closer you bring people in, the more effective you can do with that. Now, the second thing is because people have a closeness with her, for example, when she talked about how she felt on January 6th and how she's gone to therapy for it, I think that was enormously important um, for a couple of reasons. One, for anybody who has been through anything that could go, could go, okay, well, she seems to be on top of the world and she feels like she needs to go to therapy, then maybe I do too. But the other thing is, there's an awful lot of people who were there in that building that day in both parties 
who I promise you experienced trauma and have said to themselves, well, it's not like I went to war. It's not like any, you know, not, no members of Congress actually got hurt, you know, whatever. And so they've kept themselves from going to get help. And whether they'll ever admit it or not, there are Republicans who I promise you went to therapy and don't even realize for themselves that they partially did it because of her example. I, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post after January 6th where I, I said in it, consider this this article, your permission slip. I'm a combat veteran telling you that what you experienced is trauma. You can cut this out if you want and take it to a therapist. And she did that for her colleagues. So look, I don't agree with her on everything. I'm probably more more progressive than you. And I agree with her on a lot. And I also recognize like she represents a very different place than where I live. But I think that that kind of vulnerability saves lives. And I think that you don't have to be, you know, have millions of followers like her. Like there's somebody listening to this right now who doesn't even do social media, but has seven coworkers. And if they've been to therapy and they'll tell their seven coworkers, one of those seven coworkers may go to therapy and it may save their life. Jason Kander is former Secretary of State of Missouri, a former Army captain. He's the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project and co-host of Majority 54, which is one of the best podcasts if you really want to understand what the hell's going on with Josh Hawley. (laughs) Jason, Jason, thanks so much again. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And now the spiel. China has taken its shot. It's one of those shots that went across the bow and the bow has not broken. They announced the completion of military exercises near and above Taiwan. The People's Liberation Army announced they've, quote, successfully completed various missions during recent drills around Taiwan Island and effectively tested the troops' joint operation combat capacity. That was according to Colonel Xi Yi, spokesman for China's Eastern Theater Command, a theater which apparently will not be airing Top Gun. Oh, that works on several levels, or now that I think about it, maybe barely one. After Nancy Pelosi left Taiwan, and after the Taiwanese seemed pretty happy to have had her there, there were naval patrols, sorties were scrambled, missiles were lobbed, and other sabers were rattled. But overall, it had, after a while at least, a eh, knock-yourself-out type vibe. Now, the State Department can't say that, but I can, and did, eh, knock-yourself-out. The Japanese didn't like China's military inclusion in the Japanese exclusion zone, but right now Japan is bigger fish to consume while raw. Of course, you can open a deep gash in someone else by excessive saber rattling, but normally all you do is give yourself a bad earache. But this week did get me to thinking about thinking about China. I, like a lot of Americans, tend to give it respect as playing the long game, as far-sighted, as wise and unimpetuous. Mike Murphy came up with this pithy phrase on the Hacks on Tap podcast. The Chinese did not launch an airstrike on Taiwan. No, they got a million other ways to act up and remind us that, okay, we can play this game too, and it's coming. Dragons are patient. Just watch. And of course, there is the idea that the West thinks in days and China thinks in centuries. While I was talking to USC professor David Kang about Taiwan last week, I actually asked him, was this really an expression? Time's on their side. Do they really say we think in centuries, or is that just something we think they say? Well, they did wait, what, 100 years to get Hong Kong back. Okay, Kang kind of dodged the question, but made the point, yeah, they're good at long-term thinking. 
But think about what China did after the Pelosi visit. It seemed, I don't know, kind of rash, not deeply rooted in rationality. Attacking Taiwan would have been a lot worse. But I was not, for one, blown away by China's forbearance. Seemed a little like a spasm. And think about another of China's retaliatory moves. They broke off negotiations over climate change with the U.S. Here's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken rightly criticizing that decision. China has said it's ceasing cooperation with the United States on dealing with climate change. Um, that's not punishing the United States. That's punishing the entire, the entire world, and especially the developing world. A couple of points, both of which cut against the idea of China playing the long game. One, if China sees itself as the world-bestriding behemoth for the second half of this century, don't they want the environment to cooperate? Global warming will not help them in that regard. China thinks in centuries, well, then they better think about the cumulative effects of carbon emissions by, I don't know, just a couple decades, portions of a century. What about 2050? What about 2070? And tactically, using the lack of environmental compliance as a cudgel against the United States? Have they met the United States? Have they noticed the feller who used to be in charge and where most Americans are on the pressing issue of climate change? I mean, we'll sometimes sort plastics from paper, sometimes, but we're not exactly a Nordic nation or the Seychelles when it comes to actually being up in arms about emissions. Our forests are on fire more than our hair is when it comes to global warming. And then there's the chip bill. The idea behind this is that the United States is falling behind China because what China does is it jumps on opportunities and it updates their microchip technology. They're gaining on us. They're working quickly. They're working efficiently. Democrats and Republicans both agree it's a crisis. That's why they passed the bill. Emergency measures to keep up with Chinese hustle. So, they're slow and steady like the tortoise, but when it comes to chips, they're all fast-twitch muscles like the monkey. Granted, these ideas can be reconciled. China's long-term thinking puts them in a position to act quickly when the opportunity arises, but generally the idea is that China will outweigh the U.S. because they're dynastic. But it does make me think, maybe, because we're a little scared of China, we ascribe to them whatever intimidating attributes most easily fit the narrative, even if those attributes are at times inconsistent. Overall, I think stereotypes about the essential nature of a country, especially when that country is almost 2 billion people, it's a little irresponsible. Take another Asian leader, Kim Jong-un. Oh, that guy's impetuous. But Chairman Xi, he's patient. It's a little too simple. Xi is encountering lots of domestic pressure to act fiercely and now, and Kim has made smart decisions reflecting long-term thinking. Every adversary operates within a band of modes such that while it's useful to understand a country's nature, we shouldn't convince ourselves that any other country can't surprise us. Dragons can be flighty too. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Ian Scotto gave us valuable help this week. Michelle Pesca also worked in a Missouri public capacity. She was in charge of hay rides for the city of Jefferson, Missouri. I will now read you an example of duties for that job. 
makes sure straw bales are organized and replaced as needed, connects the tractor and wagons and moves out of the barn ready to receive visitors, and then returns tractor and wagon to the barn at the end of the last night. Sorry, they skipped over the actual hayride there, but just reading. Assists with stocking wood, cleaning up trash, and starting and extinguishing fires hmm, ensures the safety of the hayride participants, must be able to lift 40 pounds, must be able to traverse rough terrain and work outdoors. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, gperoo, And thanks for listening.